This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. And I love the irony, I suppose. I love the irony of the fact that it's a book from 50 years ago before the internet even existed, before social media even existed. And yet it's as relevant and timely as ever, if not more so today, that if we don't behave like entrepreneurs, if we don't put marketing first and understand what that means, and we don't change, we don't innovate, we're dead, we're done. Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Welcome back to B2B Growth Hacks. We are in our Innovator Die series, and today we are continuing the conversation with Paul O'Brien. He is the CEO of MediaTek Ventures, and we are so excited to have this conversation with you today. Paul, thanks for being here. Innovate or die, Sarah. What have I signed up for? Is this going to go well? Are we going to have an exciting conversation, or am I going to be on the other side of that coin here? Listen, I think based on what we've talked about prior to this, you are definitely on the innovate side. I might be on the die side, but listen, guys, (laughs) we are already fired up for this conversation, so we're going to apologize in advance, if we get a little fired up today, we are going to jump right in. The first thing that I want to dive into is Paul's made a statement here. If we are going to innovate, we need to have a distinct approach to economic development. Paul, break this down for us. Break it, break that down. I did make that statement and hopefully everybody listening is going, what the heck, how on earth can we start with something that big and substantial? My passion and my personality is really attuned to learning from our history, learning from the way that cities have matured and places like Europe and then the United States emerged. It lends itself to this question of how do we create a more innovative community and culture and, and economy? What we can learn from history is that there are certain aspects of certain cities, certain places of the world that have done things differently that have resulted in a lot more innovation, a lot more entrepreneurship, a lot more risk tolerance, frankly. And that then begs this question of, is there a difference between a startup community and an entrepreneurial community and an innovative culture from a very healthy and vibrant business community, frankly. There are certainly cities that y'all can think of that are wonderful cities to live in, and they've got a lot of big companies and a lot of wonderful jobs, and, and the city is doing a great job as a chamber of commerce and on behalf of companies and job growth, and yet they can't seem to figure out how to fuel or foster more startups. And so then the question is, well, why then on the other hand, are certain places like Silicon Valley or Raleigh-Durham or Austin or Miami what are they doing that enables them to be so supportive of of innovation to enable people to take risks? And the principle there in that in that statement is that it is. It's a different approach to economic development because innovation is not a simple matter of R and D or education and research or having a bunch of startup founders or a startup hub. That is not what fuels innovation. It requires all of those things. It requires jobs to fall back on when the innovators fail. Mm. It requires experience and, and mentors that can help young people or or new people to the process of innovation, help those people avoid mistakes that are known, <laughs> avoid the things that we've already learned. And so it's a matter of putting all of those things in place rather than just helping businesses and companies mature, but instead removing as many of the challenges and risks and barriers as possible so that people can take risks and, and try new things. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned this earlier, and I kind of want to hit on it a little bit deeper. It's not just giving people money. It's not just creating environment in which people feel safe to take risks. It's really a culture. It's an entire culture and ecosystem that you create intentionally by removing these barriers to entry. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's right because what society is too easy to overlook with things like Entrepreneur Magazine and, and all the movies about how great it is to be you know, in Silicon Valley or the social network, we're sold the idea of being startup founders today. Mm. We're encouraged to feel like we're missing out on something if we're not the next Elon Musk or whatever. We see people on the cover of magazines and Fortune Magazine, right? They're celebrities, fast company. We're told that we should be like that. And so we're too easy to overlook the fact, the unequivocal fact that 90% of everything that we absolutely do in the startup community as entrepreneurs or, or in innovation, 90%, think about that ratio, 90% of everything you do will fail. <laughs> will fail. It's wasted money. It's wasted time. And actually, I'm stressing wasted because it's actually not wasted, but I want you to appreciate that it can seem like it's wasted because 90% of it's gone, right? You can make more money gambling in Las Vegas than you can investing in startups, <laughs> truly, because the, the odds are better. People don't really realize that and embrace what it means. And that's why the culture has to change because unless a culture supports and celebrates and buoys up and yes, eliminates those barriers and those challenges and those costs that make it more difficult, unless a community supports the fact that almost everything attempted is going to fail, it will never work. It will never work as a startup ecosystem because everything will fail. (laughs) Everything by definition will likely fail. Therefore, you need a community that's going to pick people back up Mm -hmm. and it's going to find them a job and it's going to collaborate to promote what everybody's working on so it's less risky. And capital alone, to your point, Sarah, capital alone doesn't solve that. You can't just give people money and and enable them to take risks because they'll just lose it all and then what? Yeah. (laughs) And then what? You've got to have a way to get them back into the ecosystem and to try something else and connect with maybe companies or, or other communities in different ways so that they can find what does work out of all of those attempts that are made and unfortunately that fail so that you start to build one or two things that work out and you build upon that and you build upon that until you have a vibrant community. Yeah. To your point, I don't know anyone that raises their hand currently and says, I'm going into this to fail. That's never anyone's intention. They wholeheartedly believe in what they're chasing or their product value or the solution they're providing. And yet when they do fail, they're left there trying to figure out, one, not only pick themselves up off the ground for their failure, because we view failure as a society negatively, but then they're challenged to also be creative and think of another solution or another avenue. And that, to me, carries so much weight. I don't think that that's talked about enough or kind of dialed in enough when we're having this conversation about being a startup or being an investor in a startup. No, it, it is talked about enough. What can be frustrating is that you actually see a lot of folks on the flip side of the coin saying that we shouldn't celebrate failure. Mm-hmm. Like celebrating failure is a bad thing. Look for those articles. You'll see that. You'll see that criticism of the encouragement that failure is a good thing. That's the discussion. That's the more important discussion to have. That if you're the type of person who doesn't understand the value of failure and you want to fuel a startup ecosystem, please do us all a favor and just kind of button your lip. <laughs> Because you may not want to celebrate failure, and that's fine. Go help people start businesses. We know how businesses work. Go help people open restaurants and start accounting firms. We know how those work. In entrepreneurship, in innovation, things must fail. 
by definition. We don't know what the answer is. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's not that the idea will fail that needs to be discussed. It's not that the venture will fail. It's that as a startup founder or in innovation in technology, you'll fail constantly. You'll fail throughout the day. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and if you're not comfortable with that, right, you're going to give up. That's the wrong culture. That's what needs to change. You need to support and celebrate those people who recognize that they're going to fail. I'm going to fail on this podcast. I'm going to say something wrong. Whoops. Well, let's move on and talk about something else that's more productive, right? Unless you're able to move on, persevere through the failure, put up with the failure, embrace the fact that it's out of those failures that the ideas that work and the innovations that work emerge, then you can't do this. And so find those people that share that perspective, find those communities and those cities that share that perspective and, and indeed embrace failure. Yes, definitely. You have already seen this work really well in cities and you've seen it go really bad in cities. And in fact, people turn to you as a resource for how to create this type of environment or ecosystem in their city. In that experience, what's the biggest barrier or largest barrier of entry that you see that you really feel like people need to focus on tackling? Accessibility. Not even a moment's hesitation in the answer to that. It is my answer because we actually see many, many, many different attempts to solve that. One attempt to solve that that I'm sure everybody's excited about and working towards is referred to as diversity and inclusion. How do you fix diversity and inclusion? It's actually accessibility. You create access. Yeah. You don't need to be proactive about diversity. If you simply create access and enable diversity, it happens. You also see it in, we need to build a portal for a community so that everybody can participate. Same idea. You need to create access. You need to enable everybody to be involved. So you're tearing down the barriers to access. And, and too many cities, those barriers in economic development to that, that original question, in too many cities, those barriers exist because companies want to retain their market share, right? Or their control of a sector. Or the city wants things to happen a certain way. Or perhaps you do still live in a regional world that has ethnicity issues or gender issues need to be broken down. You need to break down all of those things that create silos. You need to have an ecosystem in which everyone is happy to connect absolutely everyone to everybody else without an agenda, without a sales premise behind it, without a need to get paid, without being a membership model. You got to just open the doors. And that eliminates, if you think about it, for the risk taker, for that entrepreneur who's willing to put in the work that eliminates the most substantial barrier to entry, which is literally just that, entry, that eliminates all of the costs and time that they would otherwise have to spend trying to break down doors. You get rid of those doors and the entrepreneurs will flourish. They will try. They will take the risk. Woo! I just had to take a breath on that one for a second. <sighs> mm. All right. We're back. So you've hit on a topic that is so near and dear to me. And it's the type of thing that makes my heart race a little bit. And that's accessibility. Dive into that a little more for me. When you talk about accessibility and creating that, what are some actionable things that we need to do to start knocking down these doors? One that rubbed people someone the wrong way when I moved to Austin was a bit of what I just touched on, this notion of having to eliminate paid membership groups paid networking groups, right? The idea that you have to pay to have access to people is immoral to me, frankly. <laughs> and I didn't really see it because, Sarah, you touched on how I've seen some success and I've seen some failures in cities. I didn't really notice that as a problem until I moved here to Austin from Northern California, from Silicon Valley. And I noticed it, though, for a very unexpected reason, which was that 10 years ago when I moved here, Austin perceived Silicon Valley as inaccessible. 
perceived Silicon Valley is difficult to break into. You had to know the right person. Mm-hmm. And what occurred to me, what dawned to me, was actually that that was a gross misperception of things. Because Silicon Valley is incredibly easy to break into. It's highly accessible. It's highly diverse. That if you have the same kind of passion for entrepreneurship and technology and, and you just want to build some things, you can go have a conversation with absolutely everybody in a heartbeat. And what I was noticing was that because Austin was used to being a city where you had to know the right person or you had to go to the right school, it was perceiving that other places must be like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then thinking, well, gosh, that's why it's so difficult to get into Silicon Valley because I don't know the right people. Well, you don't know I have to know the right people. Go have coffee on Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto and you can meet all the VCs in a matter of a week. <laughs> yeah. So as I was getting involved in this ecosystem, it became very, very clear that it was a matter of enabling people to connect as much as possible, as freely as possible. And it was easier to do than I think people realize that I jumped on Facebook, for example, and I built a Texas startups Facebook community, right? Not a social media agenda, not a marketing thing. It was just a, how do we enable everybody to just connect and talk and ask questions and get answers? Well, let's just create it. Let's just stand it up. You know, you can do the same thing with LinkedIn. You can, you can do the same thing with a meetup, an event. It's really not that difficult to say, hey, hang on. You don't have to pay to pitch investors. You don't have to pay to be a part of a demo event. Let's just do one. Let's just host one and get everybody in the same room and give us an opportunity to talk to one another. Powerful stuff, powerful point about accessibility. Of course, we have all have our own perspectives, or our own experiences. But what I think is interesting here is the fact that you're limiting beliefs about other people or other opportunities or whatever is really the thing that limits your opportunity, that limits your ability to break into the next thing. And so I think there's this undertone of your psychology around what's accessible to you as well. On the flip side of that, that even if you provide the environment, if we don't do a good job communicating and kind of connecting to what people's limiting thoughts are about some of these larger topics, technology, innovation, what is that? Then we stifle our ability to access things even when they're available because we don't understand the concepts and we we have a limiting perspective or perception of it. Yeah, our our perception is too easily limited by what's called confirmation bias, Mm. right? If I only talk within my community of people who share the same experiences, we can absolutely have a very successful community. Don't misunderstand the point. We can have a wonderfully successful ecosystem and community, but it likely won't change and keep up with the times. And to the previous consideration of my interest in history, right? If you look throughout the history of the world, frankly, right? What happened in the, in the Middle East and, and Egypt 2,000 years ago? And, and what happened in Europe 1,000 years ago? And what happened in China and, and Asia 500 years ago? What happened to the West from Europe to the United States 400 years ago? Was all a matter of access and different communities and different cultures and different beliefs and different perceptions blending, whether they wanted to or not, blending and presenting new ideas, enabling new ideas to reach other people who had different perspectives and different resources so that those ideas could flourish. It's mind-boggling how much we try to put up walls and prevent that kind of thing from naturally happening because it's very evident that that's the cause of success. That's the cause of healthy economies and change and improvement and innovation and jobs, right? That you enable people to work together and you enable people to change things by working together. You remove those barriers, you create access, and it it happens naturally. Yeah. 
there's such an exponential nature to it, to just doing some of these beginning steps that you mentioned. So moving along, what's the byproduct of creating this type of ecosystem? What's the byproduct of getting behind this type of collaboration and innovation? We like to talk about in the startup stage, we like to point out and talk about how one of the reasons innovation and new ideas tend to come from entrepreneurs and new ventures is because companies don't change very well. They don't keep up with change very well. An established enterprise, an established organization, established company, they've got a lot of challenges in taking risks. They have PR risk, they have employment risk, they've got brand risk. They're providing a solution to an existing problem and they're providing it well, they're providing it better than anybody else and good for them, right? (laughs) Truly good for them. And yet, or therefore, what is a byproduct of access and openness is the ability to change, the ability to keep up with change. And when you translate that idea of how companies can't change very well, it explains why companies get replaced by new companies, (laughs) New companies come along, they can do it better, right? Why didn't Ford figure out what Tesla figured out? Mm. Well, because Ford was doing just fine being Ford, right? And, And so it took somebody new to come along. The same thing is true of cities. The same thing is true of economies. Why do certain cities die? Why do certain cities struggle? Why do certain cities stifle? We point out that a city that is not changing is effectively dying. It's effectively dying. Even though things might be wonderful right now, it's effectively dying because your neighbor next door is thriving as they're embracing new ideas. They're changing. They're enabling new people to be there. They're fixing the traffic infrastructure. They're putting up skyscrapers or whatever they need to do to change as a city economically. They're enabling everybody else to participate in that and thrive, to take those risks and try new things. So the culture that I hope everybody embraces, the outcome of access is the ability to change. And it's critical that you have that ability to change because if you don't, you're dead. Yeah, you're effectively dying. You are either innovating or dying, literally, to the topic that we tagline here that we talked well about. Well said, you should start a podcast called that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's about none of us want to go into anything to see it die. We want to see it grow. We want to see it have longevity over time. And longevity means not resisting to change. You said something earlier. I want to dive into that. You can almost guarantee change is going to come. Oh, I mean, not even almost, (laughs) right? We absolutely can guarantee it. I mean, tomorrow you're going to be a day older than today. Everything is absolutely constantly changing, period. End of discussion. If any person, any company, any investor, any advisor ever tells you otherwise, run, (laughs) run, because of course everything's changing. In our startup circles, just in the last 18 months, right? As we're recording this in what, September, just in the last 18 months, the entire world has become a remote workforce on social media, virtually streaming literally everything. And we're very, very quickly and aggressively looking at blockchain, distributed computing and NFTs. Three years ago, none of us talked about any of that stuff, (laughs) right? And so if you're in an organization, if you run a company, if you're an entrepreneur, and you're not a part of that conversation of things that I just pointed out, you will be way behind next year, that you have to keep up with this. You have to keep up with the change because it's going to change despite whether you want it to or not. Yeah, for sure. And the resistance that kind of comes with change inevitably, I think, is where this entire failure kind of starts to happen and kind of circles back around to our negative connotation of failure. 
If you're going to be resistant to change, you'll for sure fail. But if you're going to embrace change, you're also going to fail. That was profound. (laughs) That's exactly right. You're absolutely going to fail no matter what. I've never put it that way. Well said. You are absolutely going to fail no matter what. If you don't pivot, if you don't talk to customers and listen to them and and do things differently based on what they're talking about, you all, everybody listening, you know you're going to (laughs) fail. But what's too easily overlooked is that that's how innovation works as well. That, in fact, you are going to fail. The difference is whether or not you're going to fail at a business, whether or not you're going to fail with that startup, or if you're just going to fail on a regular basis as a person, which is inevitable. Because as we're building something, as we're changing, as we're trying things, things aren't going to work out. And you have to be comfortable with that. You have to embrace that and go through, you know, six different iterations today, just today, to figure out the one thing that might work so that you could do that tomorrow and then try six other things that are not going to work. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. And you're right. Hence, break down those barriers. Hence, to fuel innovation, to fuel entrepreneurship is best as possible. Eliminate the costs, eliminate the barriers, eliminate the silos, because the individual taking those risks can't afford to put up with those things for very long. And so the more you can eliminate those, the longer people can thrive and persist through failures until they figure out what works. How do we become more comfortable with failing? How do we learn to embrace failure? That is a wonderful question. And it's a wonderful question because I have kids in high school now. And being the type of person I am, you want to raise the next generation of people to be comfortable with that kind of thing for the sake of things we haven't even talked about, for the sake of mental health, for the sake of, I mean, look, no one in existence has ever been successful throughout their life. It doesn't happen. (laughs) How do we teach people that getting A's throughout school is actually irrelevant? How do we teach people that Getting fired from a job is not a bad thing, that no one sticks at a company and with a job for 30, 40 years, at least not anymore. (laughs) Why? (laughs) That failure has a negative connotation associated with the word change. I think that might be the answer, right? That we're going to change anyways. Not every change is going to work out and that's okay. What we call that is failing. And that's not a bad thing because it's in identifying the failures that we recognize what works and we learn from that and we're able to start to be more and more successful over time. I wish I had a more definitive answer for it because it's such a great question that for our young people, for companies, certainly for startups and venture capital, failure is a part of the game. It's part of life. Failure is a part of the game. Speaking on failure, there's kind of this big question. Hey, we're a startup. We're a young company. And for any of the startups listening or investors listening, how do startups fail? So many of them fail. You just mentioned it earlier. You gave us your statistic on that. And that's the absolute truth of what's happening in the startup community. How do startups fail? How do we help them not fail? That question of access is relevant because accessibility for the sake of innovation actually isn't how they fail. It's a bit more of why they fail. Mm. If, if there isn't accessibility, some startups will fail. People won't be successful. But that's not really the how. They don't actually fail because there isn't access. They don't actually fail because there isn't money. Right? A lot of startups do incredibly well without raising any capital ever. So what is the how? The how I think is, at least I've found, the how is they fail to prioritize, believe it or not, they fail to prioritize marketing. They fail to understand what that means, first of all. Or actually they're usually misled as to what that means, what marketing means. And as a result of that, they don't prioritize it. They don't do it first. They think they're not ready for it. And therefore, startups and founders do the wrong things. They time things poorly. 
They don't know what kind of capital they need or why. They build the wrong kind of team. And hopefully everybody listening, here's what I'm alluding to, that marketing is not promoting your thing. Marketing is figuring out the answer to all those questions, right? What kind of people do I need on my team? In business, you would argue, you would think maybe that's HR or management question. It's actually not. It's actually a market question. What kind of people do we need in this organization in order for this thing to work? Well, we better study the market and figure out what can be successful in this regard. We better study who the competitors are. We better study the history of our market. That's marketing. It informs our decisions. It informs our product roadmap. It informs our release schedule. It informs our messaging, to be sure, obviously. But it's the process of figuring out what not to do more than figuring out what to do because we are going to fail, right? And that will change. And, and it will change, <laughs> right? And so, and so marketing is, it's an amusing thought. Marketing is truly the process of eliminating what not to do as quickly as possible. Knowing what not to do as quickly as possible so that you improve your odds, right? You then focus on what's more likely to work. Even though it may not, you focus on what's more likely to work. And the mistake I think most founders make and certainly most businesses make is they blame marketing when things don't work out. And there's a wonderful notion that marketing is the only thing that a business does that actually can't fail. Wrap your head around that for a second because most people have no idea what I mean by that. But it's actually very, very true. Marketing is the only thing that can't fail because marketing actually isn't the action of promoting something or building something. It's the process of <laughs> figuring out what won't work. So as long as you keep doing that, it's not the cause of the failure no. unless you actually just don't do it. <laughs> it's your tactical approach. Yeah. It's, the tactics or tools you use to answer that question or in response to those findings. Yeah, precisely. As long as you're constantly asking the questions, asking more questions, constantly looking at your, your analytics and your data and, and what's going on in the industry and news, as long as you're constantly doing that, that's what marketing is. And that's enabling you to say, ah, you know what? We shouldn't do that. That's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's try this instead. And hopefully this will work. Maybe this will work. It is informing your tactics. It's informing what tools. Don't use that tool because it's not the right tool for what we're working on. That's what marketing does. Launch a very simple example. Should we launch on iOS or Android? A lot of startups looking at mobile apps, right? The answer to that is a marketing question. And too many startups, too many developers say, well, Android, more people are on Android. Let's launch on Android. That must be the answer. No, <laughs> depends on the competitors, depends on where your customers are, depends on what's easier, what's more affordable, right? Depends on how so many things that can only come from that process of marketing. That's how. For sure. You brought up this thought for me and we deal with it a lot in podcasting and it kind of goes along with what you're saying is you know, we get people who say, I want to be on every single platform because I want to reach the most people possible with my message. And consistently I look at them and say, why would you want to do that when about 100% of people are, are living on three platforms? I mean, you got maybe a, a 10%, not even a 10% market share on all these other smaller platforms, but it's this idea, and it's kind of what you're talking about, this idea of more, go vaster, go bigger, pump more money into ads, pump more money across different platforms, and yet we don't understand why we're not successful when we're pumping in more. Yeah, yeah, except I would challenge everybody or even maybe challenge Sort of what I heard you say, which is that, yeah, almost everybody's on three platforms. Sure. Facebook, Google, and I don't know, what's your other one? Twitter? Uh, LinkedIn? Uh, oh, I was talking right. about audio platforms, or, really. Or, so it's or Apple, even audio Sp platforms. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts are your top three contenders. Right. Sure. Same thought, though, that most businesses will sort of naturally then conclude, if I'm on those three, it's going to work. Done. That's where everybody is, right? <laughs> and again, that neglects that 
What if the major real estate podcast that you're trying to launch, what if the major podcast for that is already on Spotify? Yeah. Then are you going to have a chance in hell at having a successful podcast? Probably not. But if you steered over to some other unknown or new or niche or small or local platform and you find success, ha, now you've got something. Now you've found a way to get the ball rolling. You've eliminated what likely won't work right? because you studied the market in order to focus on something that may not seem right. But because it's an open opportunity, because there's room there, because there's access to reach people there that you wouldn't find somewhere else, you can actually build something that thrives. That too many businesses truly kind of want the easy way out, right? And there is no easy way out, or rather, there is an easy way out, which is actually learn what marketing means and, and get people in place to do it. Yeah, for sure. And to your point, marketing is the continual evaluation of data. And so the next step to what I was saying is this assumption, we make this assumption that if we go on these three platforms, we should be successful. So then maybe the next month somebody comes and says, well, all my audience is living on Spotify based on my data. And I say, how did you message the promotion of the podcast? Go follow us on Spotify. Well, there's no no wonder why they're there. (laughs) And so it's funny how we shoot ourselves in the foot sometimes by not evaluating or thinking deep enough or continuously thinking about all aspects of our tactics. Continuously trying different things. Exactly. Your question was about podcasting and my mind was in other platforms. Obviously, we see the same thing in, in advertising, right? Well, I tried Facebook ads and it doesn't work. Okay, did you try Reddit and Quora and LinkedIn and Twitter and blah, blah, blah? No, social media doesn't work for us. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, that's what? what? Because you tried one thing, the one big thing? Did you even do it properly? Because probably not. Was but, your copy terrible? You know, exactly. There's so many factors Exactly. You know, and so again, that's why if you're a business owner, if you're a founder, and you are misled... To think that marketing will do the right things for you, that marketing should work, that it will result in the right advertising of the right content of the right podcast. If that's what you believe or you expect, you are wrong. You are absolutely wrong. Marketing is eliminating all the stuff that definitely won't work and likely won't work and probably shouldn't work so that you instead pour your attention into what should, may not but should, (laughs) which is certainly a better position to be in rather than being wasteful with what resources you have. Love it. Couldn't agree more. There's so much, ah, there's so much under the surface there. Tell me a little bit about, I mean, it's a non-self-serving way, but I'm very curious at MediaTek Ventures, how do you guys approach these larger problems with startups and, and deciding what to invest in and cultivating this ecosystem of innovation and encouraging it? How are you guys taking an approach to this? We've talked about it a little bit in these different threads that we are doing everything we possibly can to create access to what's called the creative class. Okay. The creative class refers to really a very broad spectrum of people, whether you're an artist or a musician or a filmmaker, obviously that's creative, or you're an entrepreneur that's a creative person as well. And so media tech, this convergence of the media industry with the technology industry, strikes right at the heart of this creative class, people who want to be doing things differently. We want to create access for them. And more than creating access in the sense of being all things to everybody, because that's not possible, what we've been doing is try to establish the idea of media tech everywhere we possibly can. So that if it's not us, that's fine. We don't care. If it's not us, but you are a media tech person, you're a creative class kind of person, I don't care if you're on IMDb or Spotify, let's enable you to get into more of the ecosystem. Or you're going to conferences, right? How do we connect you with the right people at conferences? 
That's thing number one. Thing number two is perhaps evident in what we've been talking about in marketing is that we're incredibly passionate about teaching the internet tech. The internet did a number on the media business. Whether you're 45, if you're my age and you're 45 and you remember it happening, or you're older and you're used to how the music business used to work, or you're younger and and your perception of media is mobile apps and video games, the fact is technology 25 years ago with the dawn of the internet completely broke the entirety of how media works. And ever since then, not just the media business and not just the marketing class, but literally everybody's been trying to catch up. We see that today in our political arguments about fake news. Hmm. Right? That's a misunderstanding of how news works. And we see that in these concerns about privacy and social media. That's a misunderstanding of how social media works. So we're really passionate about teaching all of this stuff. And of course, that lends itself then to teaching how startups develop. We run an incubator throughout the world to help do that. And then we put a bow around all of that. We create access as best we can. We teach people as best we can. And the bow around that to help the economic development questions, to help the venture capital community, to help the big companies is we provide the data. We give them insight to the trends, to what companies are doing, to what entrepreneurs are doing, data about what investments are working. We're trying to lead the capital class to better understand what's valuable by just giving them the information, giving them the data with no strings attached, giving them the data so that they can move the capital more effectively into more creating access and more education on behalf of the creative class. Super inspiring. And I can't thank you enough just for the information you've shared today. I mean, the perspective, the outlook, and just the knowledge is so invaluable. Anybody who is looking to get more information on this is going to want to know how to connect with you. So tell our audience really quickly, how can they connect with you? And feel free to tell them what not to do. (laughs) (laughs) That stems from our pre-show conversation. I can't stand email. (laughs) Say it. I hate email. So yeah, so believe it or not, if you email me, I may not ever get back to you. Media Tech Ventures is actually a wonderful, easy way to get a hold of us because we built a community. We built that access on our own website, and that's the domain. Kind of the beauty of how domains work these days. It's actually mediatech.ventures. So hopefully that's easy to find. And uh, stories for another time is that on the internet, I'm known as SEO Brian because I used to be a search guy. Do not contact me for SEO. My last name is O'Brien. That's where it comes from. <laughs> but I used to do that. And so I love being on Twitter. That's my domain seobrian.com. And uh, I love connecting with people and talking with people more publicly. I think it's why I hate email. Because I feel like if we're going to have a conversation, if I'm going to help you, if I'm going to advise you in some way, I'd like to do it in public so that we can help more people than just one-on-one. So tweet me, honestly, is kind of the best way to reach me. You have a question? Just throw it over Twitter. I'll have a conversation with you there. Love it. Free invitation. No excuses here, peeps. So is there a resource? Obviously, you have tons of experience. You read and you're a writer by nature. So is there a resource that you can point the audience to that can expand a little more on this topic? It's funny you say you say I read because we did talk about a book, which I'll refer to, but I actually don't read very much. Um, oh, it's not true. I don't read books in the same sense that people like to espouse books. I'm a voracious internet consumer. That's a reader. You read. Yeah, I'm a, I'm don't a reader tell in that people sense. you don't but, you read. Know, it's, it's, it's then hard to say, hey, go read such and such because it's, no, I mean, I, I, I read a thousand different things every day. Here's the one I constantly advocate for, and it's an old book. Honestly, I think that's why I advocate for it. It's Peter Drucker's Innovation and Entrepreneurship. It from, from, gosh, 50 years ago, it ties together so much of what we've been talking about, Sarah, in a way that I think people have lost sight of. And I love the 
irony, I suppose. I love the irony of the fact that it's a book from 50 years ago before the internet even existed, before social media even existed. And yet it's as relevant and timely as ever, if not more so today, that if we don't behave like entrepreneurs, if we don't put marketing first and understand what that means, and we don't change, we don't innovate, we're dead, we're done. So check that book out and tweet me, let me know what you think about it. Definitely will. Adding that in the show notes for you guys, definitely just added it to my Amazon list prior to this interview. And yeah, man, Paul, I can't thank you enough for the time you've spent today. It's been insightful for me, and I hope that it provides insight for our audience. But I'm definitely going to follow up on some of these articles that you've mentioned and dive deeper into some of these thoughts that I think might be a little limiting myself. But thank you for your time today. And I appreciate the fact that you are willing to so openly come in and talk on some tough topics. Cheers. A real pleasure, everybody. I'll catch you online. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks. This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.